0: Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. My first guest today is John Neal, CBE, Chairman and Group Chief Executive of Unipart Group, the manufacturing, logistics, and consulting company. My second guest is Bailey Aaron, Chief Executive and founder of Spark Inside, a charity working inside prisons to deliver life changing coaching programs. Well, this episode covers a lot, in fact, everything from coaching to coding. We hear from someone who set up a university inside their organisation. We explore what employers should and maybe shouldn't be asking about a person's past when they're applying for a job. And we hear how a 29-year-old CEO evolved, learned lessons, and today runs an £800 million award-winning company. Let's get to the conversation. Welcome, John. Welcome, Bailey. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Now, John, thank you so much for being here. As you know, I've wanted to get you on the lens for quite a few months. um, Well, it's great to be here, Ollie. And we've finally done it. Um, Now... Unipart uh, will be known by name to so many people. It covers manufacturing, logistics, consulting, and I want to touch on all of those with some specific examples. But perhaps more personally, your first ever job—where did where did the career begin? The first step on the ladder.
1: Well, I had a great first job. I uh, I got the chance to join General Motors because they kindly paid for my MBA while I was at university, and so I came and joined them here in the UK. And so you're doing your studying, you're doing the MBA funded by one of the world's most successful companies,
0: and then. You're tapped on the shoulder by, I guess, a lesser-known British company, and at the time, state-owned British Leyland. Just remind us what it was and
1: what on earth could have tempted you to turn your head, given you were a pretty high flyer at GM. <laughs> That's a pretty good question. Um, I mean, I loved working for GM. It was it was a great business. It was the world's biggest company. It was the world's biggest car manufacturer. They made fantastic, iconic products. I mean, you look at them, the the, 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 the 60s, the 70s, I mean, 50s, beautiful, beautiful cars. But I figured out I was 16 levels of decision making away from the president. And I had an aspirate. I wanted to run it. I mean, look, I I didn't think I could do it in the short term. It was at the end of a career. Could I get there? And it looked very, very difficult. And the other thing is uh, only 4% of GM's total profits arose outside North America. So the chance of being noticed, even though they made me their youngest overseas executive, were were quite low and then British Leyland came along and at that time they weren't nationalized they were a private sector company mm-hmm. and the the appeal was we make all the decisions here so they said to me you, know, you will be able to make decisions that we get things done and it doesn't all have to go to Gamu, which was General Motors' overseas operations in New York, so that was a very attractive proposition. And so it turns out to be
0: a momentous and life-changing decision. You're in your late twenties at this point, but by 29, things had changed even more because next to your name you have the role CEO. How on earth does that happen so young? And what did it involve? And just remind our listeners what um, British Leyland at the time
1: was actually doing. What, what was it? What was it making? So. British Leyland in those days was Britain's biggest car manufacturer. It had 35% of the market. It made iconic vehicles like E-Type Jaguars, Triumph Stags, uh, Range Rovers. I mean, these are minis. These are products which still dominate the world's markets. Um, But it became nationalised. It lost its way. The continuous conflict between the trade unions, the management, the government, the short-termism meant that the company could not make its cars profitably and productively, and it continued to lose market share. Now, in a perverse way, that was really rather helpful to those of us in what is now Unipart, because we were doing really well, so we got left alone. (laughs) So I had the chance to do things the way I wanted to do it, to build the Unipart brand, to do some really creative, imaginative things which had never been done before in the industry, and we were really very, very successful. The dealers loved us. And um, when Michael Edwards came along, he asked me to be sales and marketing director of the car division. And I said, no, no, I don't want to do that. Um, And so when I was 29, which was a huge privilege, I was given the job of managing director of of what is today Unipart. And at one point on that many
0: milestone journey, you stood in front of your employees and announced that from this moment on, it would be in their hands. It would be in your hands as employees. I just wonder how that felt. It was such
1: a huge change. That was a a fabulous day. Um, That was 1987. So, you know, 10 years after I'd been made managing director of what was then a state-run, state-owned company. And the the Prime Minister of the day, Mrs. Thatcher, was determined that British Leyland would be returned to the private sector and, as she described it, by installments. And so we thought, well, fine, that would give us the chance to create a future for our business, because it was pretty clear to me that if we couldn't Um, become an independent company, we wouldn't survive. And I think history proves that judgment was correct. And so having got the opportunity of doing what was a management buyout alongside six institutional investors and having got a a significant equity share available to our employees, which we negotiated very hard for, um, we had to communicate the opportunity to people in terms that would resonate with them. So we did something which... I suppose we probably wouldn't be able to do today, although it was incredibly authentic. We put a four-hour theatrical show together to explain what the private sector was about, what the buyout was about, what owning shares was about. And 6,000 of our employees and families came and they all decided, or many of them decided, to invest in the business and and they got a good return.
0: I want to talk to you a bit as well, John, about how people learn and how you teach important things. Um, One phrase you've used um, is the idea that you learn at 10 And you do at 11, that idea of putting lessons into practice. Because fast forward 2019, uh, Unipart, profitable company, over £800 million in revenues. And going back to some of those headlines, manufacturing, logistics, consulting, just let's zoom in, give us a quick example of what you're doing in a couple of those instances. What does it look like on the ground?
1: So in manufacturing, we manufacture very advanced and sophisticated fuel tanks for half of Britain's car industry. But we're also manufacturing batteries now for um, some of the most luxurious, prestige cars uh, in the world. And the next generation of electric vehicles as well. Uh, that's right. So we are one of Britain's biggest battery manufacturers at the moment. I don't think we're going to remain that, <laughs> in that role because it's very niche and that's the, the space we'll in. But this is a in. massive breadth of organisations you
0: work with, Sky, Jaguar Land Rover 3, Arriva. On logistics, the NHS, tell us about that collaboration.
1: So that was wonderful. I mean, we pitched for the NHS contract against a very strong, well-respected global Competitor, and, and we won it fair and square. Um, <laughs> we were supposed to have a year to take on the contract. I think we, in the end, because of some legal challenges, uh, we had five months. And then we had to, about another year to scale it up to, for what's called buy equals sell. And that we actually had a month. And then we were told, well, of course, you've got to prepare for Brexit now. So it was a huge challenge for our team and for the team that came across. And this is at the sharp end of so many of those conversations because it's getting life-changing equipment from A to B. Absolutely. And I'm very pleased to say that all the metrics are on green and, and better than ever and the Right from the cabinet office, right through the organisation, people have been extremely complimentary about what our team are doing to serve the NHS. Right. So that's a super helpful encapsulation of what the business is doing
0: day to day. I want to take you back, though. You set up what, to my mind, was a pioneering corporate university. Tell us in your own words, known as the Unipart U, what is it? What was it when it was just a spark that you were getting started?
1: So Unipart U, we set up in 1993, and the fundamental reason that I wanted to set it up was because I knew then what is true now, which is that Britain can never compete on low-cost wages, nor should we. We can only compete on the skill, the talent, the creativity and the imagination of our people. So we have a responsibility to inspire people to keep on wanting to learn. So the mission statement for the Unipart U is to develop, train and inspire people to want to achieve world-class performance within our company and amongst our stakeholders. And I'm proud to say I can point to a lot of employees at every level in the business, but particularly at the working level, who are absolutely world-class at what they do. And that's a source of intense pride for all of us that have been able to bring the Unipart U to life. And when a listener hears this word, you know,
0: university, not that you've used it, I've used it, but I think that's what you in this case stands for. Are we writing
1: essays? Is it more practical than that? Where is this to, to help bring us, to bring it to life? So we uh, we had a very interesting set of conversations with our universities in Oxford and also in other parts of the country, and they were saying, what, are you going to compete with us? Are you going to, uh, you know, criticise us? I'm like, not at all. We're trying to do something very different. And in the end, when we'd explained what we wanted, we had f- fantastic support from them. But the, the, the sort of governing idea for the Unipart University was learn in the morning, do in the afternoon. So learn the Unipart way, body of knowledge, tools and techniques, and then apply them in your workplace. And as a result of that, the learning sticks. And this is not just for the board. It goes right through to the working level. And then it was so successful that we realised we couldn't bring people to Oxford, you know, twice a week, which is, I mean, I taught the courses twice a week for three hours. We wanted people everywhere all around the world to learn so we created what we call faculties on the floor and the idea there was you learn at 10 and do it at 11 which you mentioned earlier on so you might be in your communication cell seeing that you're having a opportunity to improve performance for your customer but you need to access some of the unipart way tools you go into to the faculty on the floor you go to unipart way online you can be coached in those appropriate tools the key thing is you then come back out into the workplace and you use them. So you learn at 10 and you do at 11, Makes sense. as opposed to learning for stock.
0: Makes sense. Now, this was massively more than lip service. You invested two and a half million pounds in it. Unusually, you were doing it in-house. And I just wonder, so many courses today available from all around the world why did you choose to do it that way why not partner and you know not not do it internally and would you do the
1: same if you're starting it in 2019 with everything we've learned i would do it exactly the same way there are billions of pounds if you research it that are spent on training that goes nowhere people go off on a training course they come back they can't get it the chance to put it to use and it decays. So the Unipart University is run by a deans group, which comprises the key executives in the business, but not necessarily all the most senior ones. Um, We have some of the young generation which are brilliant. And our job is to define the critical success factors of our business, and nowadays it's a lot about digital, and then ensure that there are training programs available to enable us to perform to those critical success factors delivered by our own people wherever possible. It makes sense. Now, I had a bumpy university experience, if I can put it like that. I bet was there any scepticism when you used that university word amongst the employees? Um, there was intense scepticism um, amongst my management, amongst employees, and in, in the outside world. In fact, our head of <laughs> our chief legal counsel came and said, "John, you can't call it a university." I, so I said, "Okay." Spent a few days fooling with Lean Learning Center. I thought, no, 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 I have got to find a way. So we, I asked him, if I called it the Unipart U, a company university, would that be okay? And he said, yeah, I think it is. Now, about the point about cynicism, yes, people were until they came on the courses. And within, I would say, a month, the message was going around this is fantastic, you've got to go.
0: And sometimes your biggest critics can become the biggest convert.
1: And that's exactly what happened. Mm.
0: And this could be, as you say, throughout the organisation, from the factory floor, doing the teaching themselves. Some of our best teachers come from our operations. So a final quick question, John, and I'm going to introduce Bailey and I'm going to get you in conversation a bit with each other. Unipart, I know for a number of reasons, including through your work with business in the community. In fact, you uh, uh, support one of the key awards uh, through the Prince's Responsible Business Network. Um You have received a number of awards yourself, including an award for responsible business in the digital age, which is a huge uh, concept. I just wonder what that means to you.
1: We were delighted to receive it. And we received it based on the presentation that our um, director of innovation and our HR people made to a very challenging and uh, um, analytical audience in BITC so we were very honored to receive it but it also acts as an inspiration to the people in the company because we're at a point now that we've never ever been at in human history where the rate of human adaptability is being outpaced by the scale of technology change so technology is changing faster than human cognition and that is a really really difficult challenge for businesses to face up to. And we could talk a lot about what we're doing. I've started running one and a half hour long courses back in the university. We've had probably 500 people come on the course. And I'm very candid with them, you know, after I explain what's happening and the rate of change and the way in which all the critical digital technologies are coming down in price, how you can combine them to create solutions you've never imagined before. And people get very excited. And then I say to them, but by the way you're going to lose a third of your job. I'm going to lose a third of mine, and you will. And you personally have a responsibility, every individual, to learn new stuff and try and adapt and accept it because, one, it's very hard, and we may want to talk about it, to tailor all the training programs that are necessary to the individuals. But the culture change is the biggest challenge most CEOs are facing. Right, again, which is a huge conundrum, which, which again, we can come back to. It makes
0: me wonder if the Unipart U has never been more important given those seismic changes
1: it absolutely is more important than it's ever been because if you look at the the what's what's happening you've got change happening faster than human adaptability you've got technologies all of the technologies coming down in price very fast whether they're sensors iot platforms whatever they are basically you can get all this stuff almost free if you just go on to github i mean i don't want to oversimplify but there's a phenomenal amount of code out there in fact one of the things i have said to all of my employees is when you're very young you learn to read so that you can read to learn you must all learn to code so, that you can code to learn. And we're trying to encourage everybody to learn how to code. Interesting. And at last, it's being taught in our primary schools. And quite least, right, too. And, and, and changes afoot. So,
0: from fast changing digital environments uh, to our next guest, Bailey, I see you as a change maker within what I think you will agree with me is a very slow to change environment. Uh, I won't keep our listener in suspense any longer. Tell us about Spark Inside, and then we'll hear more about your personal journey.
2: Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, So I founded Spark Inside in 2012 in order to bring coaching into prisons to tackle high rates of reoffending and also a culture uh, that is not conducive to rehabilitation. So we have worked with over a thousand people who either live or work in prisons in the U.K., and through our two coaching programs, um, The Conversation and Hero's Journey.
0: And this coaching happens face-to-face inside the prison walls. Yes. And give us an example of how it works in practice, because there can be some misunderstanding about what coaching is and what it isn't. So help 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 us understand.
2: Yes. So coaching itself wasn't my idea. All of the programs that Spark Inside run are co-designed with the people that we support so back in 2012, I met with a group of young people who'd um, experienced prison directly or indirectly, and they requested a non-directive and non-curricular service, non-directive being no advice or guidance and non-curricular Uh, Indicating that they didn't want to have a a one size fits all program. Um, Coaching is a way of asking people questions to help them find solutions on their own without giving them advice or guidance. So there's no mentoring, no therapy, no counseling. It's uh, present and future focused, and it's a professional qualification.
0: Got it. Now, I like the double meaning of spark inside, so I've got to ask why did it spark inside you? You could have chosen (laughs) so many different problems to solve. Why this one?
2: I started in behavioral economics. Uh, My background and my passion is decision-making theory, rational choice. I absolutely love that. In university, uh, there was an equation in one slide of one course in behavioral economics and public policy, whereby I learned that when employers are making hiring decisions, the weighting on criminal conviction outweighed every other factor, including education and experience. So this meant that Regardless of somebody's attempt to gain the requisite education or experience, if they had a criminal conviction, they were unlikely to be hired. That goes in the face of the concept of the American dream, social mobility and opportunity. So it's it's really down to that realization that I moved into the space of criminal justice policy first in research and then as an entrepreneur.
0: And indeed, your first entrepreneurial step was a, a, a separate organisation in North America, Venturing Out. Should we touch just very briefly on it? Because I think one transitioned to the other in terms of similar similar area of work.
2: Yeah, so uh, in 2007, when I started my first job, well, my first uh, post-university job, I, I was doing criminal justice research at Harvard Kennedy School. And I felt quite ivory tower, which I suppose I, I completely was uh, in an ivory tower I was working on policies and research that affected people in the criminal justice system, and I had no personal experience with that system myself. I started volunteering in a prison, and as I was doing that, met some really inspiring and talented individuals, many of whom were exceptionally entrepreneurial. There's quite a bit of research showing that the average person in prison, so not even a person in prison who self-defines as an entrepreneur, um, but the average person in prison is more entrepreneurial than medium growth entrepreneurs. So um, with that knowledge, hearing that there was demand from people in prison for information about how to translate their pre-existing entrepreneurial qualities and uh, experiences into legal business, and also feeling um, the weight of privilege and responsibility that If something needs to be done uh, and I can do it, surely I should. That led me to start uh, what became a statewide nonprofit organisation teaching entrepreneurship in prisons. Or rather teaching people how to translate their pre-existing entrepreneurial tendencies because it would be patronising for me to say that people in the criminal justice system aren't already quite entrepreneurial.
0: Right. Well, on that um, system, you have described the prison system, at least in the UK, as archaic and dysfunctional. Tell me what you mean.
2: Yes. um, Those are two very strong words and also uh, almost not strong enough to describe what we have here. I've been amazed by how we talk about systems change in almost every other sector, changes to the education system, the healthcare system, the government, and yet we don't talk about systemic changes to the criminal justice system. It's not even, I think, a a system. A system implies that it's cohesive and, and, and functional to some extent. There are major problems. Uh, the rate of re from our prison system is almost 50% for adults. Um, I think it's 45% for adults. And it's two-thirds for young people. Prison doesn't work, and it has never worked. And yet, we still rely on it as a primary means for punishment. And I think we also equate punishment with accountability. And we also consider prison to be the primary form of accountability and punishment for people. So it's, um, it's an expensive system. I think, on average... £50,000 per place per year to put someone in prison. And it's, it's not it's not keeping us safe. It's not rehabilitating. Um, and it, it's not addressing the root causes of crime.
0: And what would you say, I mean, one of the last times I saw um, John was handing out an award to Timpson, uh, recognising their work supporting individuals who have spent time in prison. What would you say to a large employer listening today, particularly around how they engage with uh, or perhaps give an opportunity to someone who spent time behind bars?
2: Yeah, I guess a, a few things. Um, the first thing um, that I would say is that it's all of our responsibility to be working on criminal justice reform. It might seem easy because prisons are by design separate from the community to not think about them or to pretend like it's someone else's problem. And at the end of the day, all of us need to step in and and work on this together. So I think that um, business leaders do have a responsibility to start thinking about how we consider um, and address criminal justice reform. Secondly, many employers don't include in their diversity and inclusion policies Criminal conviction. And as we start thinking more about creating welcoming and inviting cultures within our companies, I would encourage employers to consider including criminal conviction under the list of protected characteristics and ensuring that we're hiring people who have convictions themselves. One of the things that I love about Timpson's is that they don't consider their hiring policies to be corporate social responsibility. It's about identifying a talented market of people that are. Uh, very employable and loyal and hiring them, which makes the strong business case for it.
0: So just let me ask you on that, Bailey. You are an employer yourself uh, within the charity Spark Inside. To what extent is your point that you shouldn't or wouldn't want to know if a potential employee had a conviction on their record?
2: I spent a lot of time thinking about this. It would be hypocritical if I didn't. And I request that if anyone applies to Spark Inside and comments that they have a conviction, that that is stricken from their, that's taken out of their covering letter before it reaches the decision maker. Uh-huh. All of us are biased, and I carry those biases as well. And it shouldn't matter to me, because that's someone's past. I care about how they present an interview. I care about what they've written in their CV. It's not relevant as far as I see it.
0: Right, and yet in all of the other areas of their life, presumably you do ask them about their experience. So how are all those other experiences relevant, but not this one?
2: Criminal conviction has nothing to do with someone's performance in their job. So I would be interested in, in someone's uh, education, their qualifications, and um, their passion for the work that we're doing, what, what makes them qualified. But spending time behind bars is not
0: relevant. Understood. John, it would be strange if I didn't ask you for your reflection on what is a very sensitive
1: topic. I just congratulate Bailey on expressing it, you know, so clearly and with such conviction and with such authenticity that I've no doubt you'll have convinced a lot of people to think again because of what you've said and, and you, you mentioned earlier on that you know Unipart had judged the outstanding employer award and before Timpson's got the award in METs, um, recycling lives got an award. And what they proved was that the reoffending rate of individuals who they recruited from prison was massively reduced compared with those that weren't. So the data, would support the argument that bringing people in, giving them another chance. Um, You know, we all have a mental image of criminals, which probably derive from watching crime programmes on television. But uh, as you said, Bailey, an awful lot of people have ended up in prison for such silly minor offences or mistakes that they've made in life that they're not going to make again. And if you give them a chance, they have a fulfilling life and they, they make a contribution to our society.
0: And is there, Bailey, a misconception, perhaps even a use of language that frustrates you? Something we've got an opportunity here to uh, to put a message out, haven't we?
2: Yeah. There's no such thing as a criminal. Um, no one is born a criminal. It's it's a label, um, and it's one that we use commonly, as well as other words like felon, convict, offender, ex-offender, ex-felon, ex-convict. And I encourage all of us to think about using person-centered language when it comes to describing those people who are inside of our criminal justice system.
0: So how would we change that in that case? Because I can understand that labelling someone an ex-offender might be exactly the opposite of what it takes to give them a fresh start.
2: I'd encourage us to use language like a person with a criminal record, a person in prison, um, a person who's been involved in the criminal justice system. And I'd also encourage any listeners from the Ministry of Justice to rethink terms like young offenders institution, Uh, young offenders being an unhelpful term.
0: Okay. Okay. Now, let me ask you a specific question. You have worked, and indeed on the other side, John Unipart has worked to support many causes over the years. So I'd like to start, Bailey, the sort of support that you really value from a large corporate. And I do also wonder if I can push you to the other side of it, anything perhaps unhelpful. Where do the best partnerships lie?
2: Sparkinside is lucky to have had some um, truly outstanding partnerships with organisations, but not nearly enough. What differentiates a helpful partnership from an unhelpful partnership, I would say, are two things. Number one, partnership. We are often unhelpfully the recipients of quite patronizing behavior on the part of uh, business leaders who might assume that because they have a career in business, they know what's best for a charity, any charity, and also that any form of support will do. It doesn't have to be as high quality as the corporate sector um, might receive, but uh, kind of intermediary product might suffice for the charity sector. We're recruiting right now for my successor, a new CEO, and we're open to somebody that comes from the corporate sector. In fact, we would value someone or people with all sorts of different experiences. And I was just um, reflecting on how rare it would be for a company to actively seek out a CEO from the charity sector. Now, I've been leading charities for over a decade, uh, and I like to think I'm quite good at what I do. Surely the skills and experiences that I bring from the charity sector could be used to run a company as well.
0: Well, we'll get John's take on this. However, give us the better example or a a flip side example of when a corporate partnership really does thrive. Give us an example. Just bring it to life because it's about those partnerships that I want us to zoom in on.
2: The best kind of partnership for me is a company that um, asks the charity, what is it that you need and how can we support you with that? The number one answer from charities will always be money. At the end of the day, charities need funding. What we don't need, for the most part, are one-day employee volunteering programs that often cost us more in administrative time than they do in, um, in support. And the reason that charities often accept those, but not always, are because we think that it will lead to money later on. What's not helpful for us in terms of, uh, like I, I mentioned earlier, um, a product or a service that's not well thought through. The opposite of that would be um, a really well-executed product. So um, I'd like to name Arnold & Porter, which is our legal partner. They are outstanding. Um, We've worked with exceptional individuals there. Over the past eight years, we've had that partnership. If I need support, um, I speak to senior partners there. And the way in which they treat me is the same, I believe, as the way in which they would treat a corporate client.
0: It does lead us to the question, you know, traditionally, or in my experience, founders of charities can leave when the charity is stumbling or on the rocks. Um, Spark Inside is thriving, and yet you're on the move. Why?
2: Again, in, in the corporate sector, I think it's pretty um, standard to hire a growth CEO. Uh, there's a founder, um, might be co-founder, the founder might be forced to leave or asked to leave after a couple of years, or they choose to leave. Um, they're replaced by a new CEO, and, and that's that's part of the evolution of a company in the charity sector, we don't see the same trends. Um, that's not always because the founder chooses to stay beyond their expiration date. Um, it's also driven by funder behavior and some funders who who like founders to stay on for a little bit longer. Uh, in my case, I recognize that Spark Inside is at a really exciting time and its organizational existence, uh, we're set to launch this licensing program and to, to grow and to scale. And that requires a completely different skill set than the entrepreneurial one.
0: No, I understand. Well, I have to ask John in that case. You have survived, if I can put it cheekily, but thrived in over four decades of evolution and change from the 29-year-old CEO to the current chairman and group chief executive you are today. How? What's
1: the secret? I wish I knew. <laughs> I mean, well, look, always being day, yeah. dissatisfied, always being dissatisfied with where where you are personally in terms of your own skills and understanding and experience and knowledge and ideas, and always being dissatisfied with the performance of your business because you know you can always make it better. But you, you have to be a bit schizophrenic. I mean, if you keep telling people you're unhappy with them when they're doing well, then you'll have a very demoralized, disengaged group of employees. And, you know, we're very proud that We have a 400% higher level of engagement in Unipart employees in the national average because we spend a lot of time recognising and thanking people for a job well done. You know, a thank you for a job well done that's authentic is really valued and appreciated. A kind of mechanistic thank you isn't. So I suppose it's always looking to reinvent the business, never being satisfied with where we are. And on a
0: practical note, how do you keep abreast of these changes? What? what techniques do you use?
1: Because it can be
0: overwhelming, it can be intimidating, frightening.
1: So I try and surround myself with people who are smarter than me, which you'd probably say pretty easy to do, but um, I decided I had to learn to code because of the point I made earlier about you know, if you learn to code, you can code to learn, and it's opened up a whole vista of possibilities and I would never have understood before, yes.
0: So let me ask another question related to Bailey's comment from the 29-year-old. Surely there was a point at which you're employing a number of direct reports significantly older than you,
1: you think, look, I'm, over.
0: I'm, <laughs> I'm out of my depth. I need to tag someone else in as the chief executive. but you didn't do that.
1: No, I, I, to be honest, I never really felt that. I mean, when I was 29 years old, I remember doing a radio interview and somebody said, you must feel daunted by... I remember exactly those words, by being the CEO at 29 years of age. And I said, no, I don't. I mean, I have talented people working with me. And I suppose I've learned a little bit about how to engage people on a, on a shared vision and on a shared mission. And that works whether people are younger than you or older than you. If they believe in what you're trying to do, and I would you know, they'll commend, get behind it. I would encourage any listener um, to read more
0: widely about the Unipart way, uh, which is almost a whole philosophy in and of itself. We couldn't even do it justice even if we had uh, two hours. Um, so I feel guilty almost asking you to sum it up, John, but it, it, is, it is a way of thinking and doing.
1: Well, I mean, we did define it. We defined it as a philosophy of working underpinned by tools and techniques that form part of our knowledge management systems, which is the Unipart way online, deployed through our faculties on the floor, that we continuously improve based on our experience. And the purpose is to improve faster than the best alternative available to our existing and potential customers. So if we can do a brilliant job for our customers, there's a chance we could keep them for life. And if we can do that, We've got a better job of securing the future of our employees, our suppliers. We can play a better role in our communities and we can make a fair return so that we can keep on reinvesting in our business. Bailey, would you ask John a question?
2: Yeah. um, So I think one of the great opportunities that exists for us in the charity sector is to work more collaboratively with the corporate sector on social reforms. Um, So in my case, that's advocating for systems change, the criminal justice uh, system and, and prisons. What would your advice be to those of us who are leading charities, who are looking to engage with like-minded corporate partners on on how we can do that, given that our network may not be as extensive and our power may not be as great?
1: So one of the great things about business in the community is it connects people up. It connects the voluntary sector uh, to the private sector and does it very well. I think it's one of the things BIT should be very proud of. And I think the most important thing is to find someone who's passionate about what you care about.
2: And I guess beyond that, I believe that it, uh, you mentioned responsibility quite a few times. I believe that it is the responsibility, particularly of those people who hold positions of power and influence like yourself, um, to use that position uh, to advocate for for change and perhaps change outside of the traditional business case, outside of internal to company benefit, but change that is necessary for, for the world or at least for our communities. What do you see um, as a way in which you yourself or other company CEOs who who are quite influential and powerful um, can use your personal voice as well as your corporate voice to advocate for significant social change outside of perhaps the business case?
1: Well, yeah, what a great question. And, you know, I reflect on my time with business in the community and one of, I hope I'm not misquoting HRH, but I think he understood that business harnessed correctly. It was a powerful machine, a powerful driver of of change for good. And and, I think he coined the idea of doing well by doing good. And you then make the business case for it, which enables business leaders to say, look, I'm doing this because it's the right thing to do. But actually, it's not altruism. It's not charity. It's the right thing to do to use business know-how to make things better. But you will hear far more businesses now talking about purpose and talking about their wider community, about the triple bottom line, about the responsibilities they have to the communities in which they work. And I think the reason that happened is that we provided compelling evidence that working in partnership with suppliers enabled you to get the quality up and the cost down. Well, why wouldn't you want that? That training employees meant that you could do a better job for your customers and so you could... Um, you know, retain them for longer, that working in your communities, helping your community schools turn out young men and women who were keen to learn would save you money because you didn't have to do it all over again, that you would have better qualified employees that would help you take care of your customers. So making the business case actually created a much bigger bow wave, if you like, of business leaders who became convinced. And then the dialogue changes. And what's your sense of that, Bailey, because you have spent time as a global shaper through the World
0: Economic Forum. Is your sense that the, uh, the tide is changing? Is it too little, too late? Is your glass half full on this?
2: I think that there's an opportunity to do a lot more.
0: I, I think many
1: business leaders would agree with you.
0: Right. Well, on this, um, our time is racing along. I have a very quick fire round um, for you, which, of course, I ask all our guests on the lens. Um, I'd love to know who you'd like to meet. One of my fascinations in life, making useful connections. Bailey, if you could have coffee with anyone, who would it be? And John, I'll ask you the same.
2: Darren Walker, who's the president of the Ford Foundation. Oh. He is inspiring. He's a bridge builder. He's provocative.
1: He's incredible.
0: John, who would you sit down with him why?
1: I think I'd like to have dinner with Elon Musk. Yes. Tesla, SpaceX. Visionary guy, you know, changing the world. Mostly for the better, as far as I can see. I'd love to meet him.
0: Well, indeed. And for your... Well... For many reasons, I agree. How about your bookshelves, Bailey? A book, doesn't have to be a business book, that you think is worthy of a wider audience. And we link to all of these. It's turning into quite the shelf. So
2: a book that I turn to when I'm feeling in despair about the criminal justice system is Franz Kafka's The Trial. I highly recommend it. Um, it's it's brilliant uh, fiction and also, I think, important uh, for us to understand um, sometimes the the senselessness of bureaucracy.
0: Interesting. Speaking of Kafka, John, you thrive in things that are running well and being run well. What's your sense as to how well the country's being run these days?
1: (laughs) (laughs) How many hours do we have? (laughs) And I just despair at the battering brand Britain gets every day. From? From the way our politicians behave. But the battering it gets from within its From within, from from within, absolutely. Look, I was was around when Britain was the sick man of Europe, when you used to go everywhere and apologize for how bad we were. And, you know, post um, Mrs. Thatcher, and that may be a provocative thing to say, but Britain's brand reputation improved immensely. Wherever you went in the world, people were proud of what we did. We were a successful economy. We were growing. We were doing a lot of the right things. We were the number one place for foreign direct investment. World-class companies were coming here, investing here. And in the last three, years. We put the economy on hold because we want to have this silly debate about Brexit. We then say publicly, our politicians, that we're not going to pay the money that we owe to people we've partnered with for 40 years. But never mind the rest of you out there, the other 19% of markets. Trust us. You can do business with us. And you think, why would you do that? And then we talk about proroguing parliament and trying to subvert democracy and, and, and spinning that it isn't the case, and yet we, have the, we think we have the moral high ground to criticise China and Hong Kong. You know, you can't behave one way and then pretend you're on the high ground you used to have when you've just cut it from underneath us. So I would love politicians to, to just tell the truth present people the facts so as they can reach conclusions because I think we're all fed up of being of listening to spin and, I'm afraid, lies. And that's got to stop if we're going to restore integrity in politics and restore Britain's reputation, which has taken a huge battery. OK, well, Bailey has talked about... i um...
0: <laughs> put you down as undecided, John. Um, <laughs> Bailey has talked about switching sectors. A listener might say, well, John, you're clearly opinionated and frustrated, maybe it's your turn to uh, play a role in politics.
1: Look, I was told to do that when I was in student politics back in my university days, and I decided that I could do more and do better and create more prosperity by running a good business, which I set out to do my best to do. And I have no interest in going into politics. Well, maybe politics has an interest in you getting more involved (laughs) in it. (laughs) Yes, well, um, I'm happy to try and illuminate the facts so that people can make judgments about what's in the best interests of the country when I get the opportunities, which I do get from from journalists. But I I genuinely don't want to go into politics. Uh, It's just not for me. Understood. Let's briefly
0: touch on your bookshelf, something that you would share with the listener, something...
1: So this may not be the most inspiring answer to your question, but the book that has made the most difference to my life and my my business life is a book called The Machine That Changed the World, which was written by Professor Dan Jones. And it explained why the Japanese motor industry was so successful, and it explained it in journalistic terms but underpinned by very high-quality academic evidence. So it made something which was quite academic very accessible. And the machine being talked about here was... Was the the Japanese auto industry. The auto industry. And their lean production systems. And I asked every single employee in my company, please read this book to understand it because this is what we're going to do. So it has had a profound effect on me and on my company. And, and the Part journey. And, and indeed it's had on a huge part of industry around the world. Absolutely. No, great tip. Thank you. Bailey, a final
0: question. Um, a piece of advice to your former self. This may be to the individual growing up in Calgary... It might be to yourself on the first day of starting Spark Inside. What would you say?
2: There is a line that uh, someone I met early on in my journey told me. He said, Bailey, the reason that you keep on succeeding is that you don't know that what you're doing is impossible. And I would give myself that line uh, at an earlier age. For those of us that are thinking about systems change, that think outside the box, that are told often that uh, what we're doing is unrealistic to impossible... I say that if we don't know that it's impossible, it's possible.
0: Okay. Well, in a conversation about learning, it makes me wonder if sometimes ignorance can be a weapon. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, to to be explored another day, just give us a clue about your next chapter because I'd be amiss not to ask you.
2: Yes. um, I'll be setting up a consultancy to support uh, philanthropists, uh, trust-making foundations, and other organisations interested in uh, contributing financially to the charity sector to make decisions that are more impactful and also consider perhaps um, unhelpful biases or prejudices in a different way.
0: Understood. And I hope, I have faith, that the link with Spark Inside will remain.
2: I sure hope so too. I'm I'm very aware of the shadow of a founder, uh, for incoming CEOs, and um, and mindful that I don't want to impose myself on a, a new chief executive. Mm. So I, I hope that um, with with the future CEO, we can work on a way to work collaboratively.
0: Excellent, Will Bailey. Good luck for whatever the future holds. Thank you, John. Back to could be the 27 or indeed 29 year old new CEO or any point in your past.
1: A piece of advice. Can I just say I would love... Bailey's comment about go for the impossible. So many people believe that they are limited in where they can go. And there are two great books I read. One One's called Talent is Overrated, and the other is Bounce. And it proves overwhelmingly that 10,000 hours of deliberate practice, anybody can be great. Mm. Okay, you don't have to do 10,000, but it destroys the myth that you can't achieve things that you might have thought impossible you know, if you've got the right coach, the right mentoring, the right support, the right encouragement, people can achieve far more than they ever imagined. And I think what would have helped me is if at a much earlier age, I'd had a coach or a mentor. Um, I never did. And and I'm sure I would have short-circuited a lot of mistakes that they would have simply been able to say with the (laughs) experience, don't go there or, you know, adjust this. So... Get a mentor that's there just for you, not for any other purpose. But someone who's good and experienced and knowledgeable. And and you know you have to be. You know, there are some people like like Bailey who are wise beyond their years, but there are an awful lot of people that have spent a very successful career. They've they've fallen into the traps. They've scuffed their knees. They've learned what doesn't work. I mean, I've learned a lot of that now. And if you could get someone like that as a mentor, it would be fantastic. And that's the one thing I think I would have like to have had earlier in my life. Indeed. Well, those
0: mistakes uh, have led you to running a serially award-winning global (laughs) business, and and I know have been lessons in themselves. I'm so grateful to you both for your time, John Neal and Bailey Aaron. Thank you for being my guests on The Lens. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you. Well, it's been a privilege. You've been listening to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. If you like what you've heard, then please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps and makes a difference. Thank you. Also, we're on Instagram at The Lens Podcast or on the business in the community website. The Lens is produced and directed by Aurelia Saletsketa, music and editing by Giselle Hall and Will Francis, and our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye.